You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time here, we extend to you a very special welcome. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. It's wonderful to have all of you here, but especially to have all of the guys from Merge on the front rows um, where I can keep a really good eye on them. Uh, Just kidding. Look, uh, I pray that what the Lord has done in their hearts and minds this weekend uh, will continue. As we go forward, Jesus is the head of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, but these guys are going to have a big say how the church in America goes. It's the Lord's doing ultimately, but just like he uses all of us, he's going to be using them. So if you can stay awake, you'll appreciate, I think, some of the lessons from this book of Isaiah. Just a few really quick things. Work day, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, mulching, trimming, all kinds of stuff like that. Be here at 8, Saturday morning if you can. Next Sunday is potluck. Man, it's good eating on potluck Sunday. But remember, we need to bring extra. We have a lot of students, and hopefully some students will be here for the first time, and we'll say, whoa, we had a pot, we got a potluck, that's awesome. Um, So bring extra food, students, ramen noodles, whatever you can do, we'll appreciate (laughs) chips. Um, But look, participate, everybody participate, be a part of this, it is going to be a great day. It's... uh, Palm Sunday, we're having a potluck. Uh, It was a celebration day, although it was heading toward the cross. But we're going to celebrate life uh, together. And then, if you were not in Grace Connection this morning, it's still not too late. Next Sunday at 9 o'clock, we meet in the very back for Grace Connection. If you want to know more about uh, church. Well, um, this morning, I'm going to jump right in. Typically, I'm given an analogy that's sort of... Gets us into the flow of things, but if you're here for the first time this morning, you should know that we are doing a study in the book of Isaiah. Um, It was written some 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah, and and Bert mentioned in Isaiah 53, a beautiful time at at the table this morning, just like it, it is every time when one of our elders leads. I'm privileged to lead a lot, but... Bert reminded us of Isaiah 53, where the Lord poured out his soul and the Father turned his back on the Son as he took our sins upon himself and the wrath of God was poured out on the Son. Isaiah said these things 700 years before Jesus. He wrote them 700 years before Jesus was born and perfectly described what was going to happen. Isaiah was considered the finest theological mind of his day and and, and easily one of the best theological minds in the history of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. Only Deuteronomy and Psalms, Psalms quoted more in Deuteronomy close to the number of times that Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. Because of Isaiah's open access to the kings under whose reigns that he ministered at least four, um, a lot of people think he was a cousin to the royal line. 
You know, you just didn't get to walk in. Imagine walking into the president's office and saying, Thus saith the Lord. You just didn't get to do that. But Isaiah seemed to do it quite a bit. And so there's speculation he was kin to the kings. Uh, how should one read Isaiah or any other Old Testament book uh, for that matter? I mean, should we, when we look at the Old Testament, should we look at it through the lens of the New Testament? Or do we look at it, we try to put the New Testament aside and just look at it the way it was originally written so that we can get the most out of it? Probably your answer to that will depend on whether or not you think of Scripture as one story with two parts or two separate stories. If you think of Scripture as one story with two parts, then you're going to recognize that they both interact with each other. And you're going to say that, look, especially if, if, if only the first part were written, then that's all we'd have to worry about. If only the second part were written, that's all we... But, but we have to synthesize. We have to understand the unity of Scripture as a whole. So when we look at Isaiah, we have to consider it in light of the cross. It's one, one of the benefits of, of studying a book like Isaiah is that it helps us to see how the Bible functions as one story with two parts. Since the law was given as the standard in the Old Testament by which God's people were to live, while the New Testament understands that the gospel is our, not only our reason for having relationship with God, but our power for life. Since that's the case, it would be easy to assume that the Old Testament has little to say to us. But that would be a huge mistake. Isaiah is quoted over 50 times in the New Testament. Furthermore, some people have determined, I haven't counted these up, but there are 613 laws. In so, <clears throat> while grace is the standard by which we live and the power by which we live, God still has expectations for us as followers of Christ to live in a certain way. It's not as though the gospel gives us license to live as any, any way we desire. The, the, old the New Testament authors... <clears throat> talked about the absurdity of thinking that now that I'm saved, I can live any way that I want to. It's, it's just incongruous. Um, God's heart for righteousness is the same now as it was before Christ died. Praise be to God. Praise Jesus. The wrath of God has been satisfied, having been poured out on Jesus. And we hide behind the cross he took uh, the, the wrath that was righteously directed toward us upon himself. Even still, God's desire for righteousness is just the same as it was before. And in fact, the New Testament takes it even further. It's like, not only can you not kill somebody, you can't even hate them. How difficult is that? That's no fun at all. I mean, you know, you want to be mad with people. Allison and I help each other all the time. I remind her that I'm far better. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, pride, that's, we're going to talk about that a lot today too. But the New Testament has even stronger standards. It's done though with the, with, with, the, with the beauty of the gospel pushing us to live in these ways. Uh, one of the many benefits of studying Isaiah is to understand God's heart toward righteousness and sin. So 
that we might be aware of what he expects of us and that we might repent of sinful behavior when God reveals it to us. The deceitfulness of sin that is mentioned, it's referenced in the book of Hebrews. The deceitfulness of sin. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The deceitfulness of sin encounters a serious reality, a check in our text today, Isaiah 2 and 3 primarily. Uh, as you read the Bible, when you, whenever you read scripture or you hear a sermon and you encounter <clears throat> a, a text where God, with authority, requires something of you, when he says, this is what I expect of you, how do you respond to it? I would suggest that there are three primary ways people respond to God's claim of, of authority as creator over their lives. <clears throat> the first way men and women respond is to reject God's authority. Now, we do that in several different ways. We can refuse to believe that an all-powerful creator God exists. This is the most convenient way to reject God's authority. Say, what authority? Look, show me God, and then I'll, I'll submit to his authority. I just don't believe he exists, but of course, most human beings have suspicion, some suspicion, that God does exist and that there is someone or something that has authority over their lives. Another way you can do it is to react to the requirements of God's law with anger. Who does he think he is to, <coughs> to tell me who I can love and who I can't love and how I'm supposed to live? Uh, besides, if God is all-powerful, why is there so much pain and oppression and abuse in the world? I cannot serve a God like that. As if we get to choose the kind of God we will serve. Third way we do that, we reject uh, God's authority, is to assume and assert that many of the moral commands in Scripture are antiquated and thus are no longer relevant. I said this a few weeks ago, said it in Grace Connection class this morning. Our culture, certainly the culture of the first century when, in which the New Testament was written, was different than our culture today. It was worse than our culture today. And yet the New Testament writers waded right in and they said, this is what God expects of his children, his followers. So we can reject God's authority. Or, second... We can acknowledge God's right to say what is, to, uh, his right to say what is right and then seek to be justified by living up to his standard. In other words, I will please God by keeping the law. And if I keep it well enough, and if my good works outweigh my bad works, then he will accept me. Uh, this, of course, is futile. <laughs> Uh, because as Paul said in, in Galatians 2.16, and, and possibly alluding to Psalm 143.2, another reason that the Old Testament is valid for us, all the New Testament is is a, is a quoting or allusion to all of the Old Testament <coughs> passages that were written, understood in light of the cross. So Galatians 3.2.16 uh, tells us, by works of the law, no one will be justified. When we read Isaiah without acknowledging the role of the cross in our redemption, when we say, look, let's just put the New Testament aside. Let's just look at it like it is. You're going to come up with law. I mean, that's just sort of going to be where you, where you land. And you're going to say, boy, I better straighten up or God's, 
going to be mad with me. And we don't understand the cross. And so then we start trying to justify ourselves by our good works. Well, the best way to respond, the third way, is to recognize and acknowledge our sin, crying out to God for his mercy. Believers long to please the Lord. We so want to please the Lord. We want to live according to the design he's created for his people. But our hope of living in such a way that pleases him is because we are in Christ. There's a Holy Spirit working through us. But when we sin, the life of the believer, as Martin Luther said in his first 95 Theses, is a life, the life of a believer is a life of continual repentance. We continually say, oh, Lord, I, I sin. And then we have that joy of God's forgiveness and our relationship is what it ought to be. So when we are confronted with our sin in Scripture, we ought to, rather than trying to justify it or twist it to make it say what we want it to, I just say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. For Jesus' sake, and help me to live this life as you want me to live. Well, with that, I'm going to read a portion of our text, which in total is Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, 1. So two full chapters and uh, then the first verse of another. I I'm just going to read, though, chapter 2. It's a big text anyway, verses 6 to 22, and then we'll draw application from the entire text. As you follow along in your Bible, you will notice that this is written in poetic form, and that has all kinds of implications for meaning in the text. Don't have time to talk about it today, maybe another day. That's, I'll be introducing Isaiah on the last Sunday of the, uh, uh, of the series, I'm sure. But um, <clears throat> we don't have time to examine it at that level, and you'll notice on the screen that I've taken it out of the poetic form just for uh, the sake of space. It is our custom to stand as the scriptures read, so I'm going to ask you if you would. Please stand for the reading of God's word and prepare yourself. This is a tough text. For you, verse 6 of chapter 2, for you, Yahweh, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end of their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And then think of these words. Do not forgive them. Isaiah's done with it. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day. And then just see if you can pick up a word that is sort of uh, repeated here. Just your uh, observation skills, okay? Against the Lord. Look, these are God's people he's talking about. Against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up. <coughs> and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon. Lofty and lifted up. And against all the oaks of Bashan. 
against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish. And for the 10th time, God is against all their beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty which he rises to terrify the earth. Once again, before I read these last few verses, this is what's so shocking. These are words that God usually reserves for those who don't know him. And yet they're written to the people of God. And his point is, all of these beautiful things that their hands have made, the people as they run into the caves to, to hide from the terror of the Lord will throw them to the bats and to the moles. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs and from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath for of what account is he? Let's pray. Lord, um, we don't know at this moment how to respond. We really just sit trying to absorb what we have just read. And we pray that you would open, convict, change, and encourage our hearts this day. We need not only to hear from you, but we need to respond to you. And find ourselves under the flow of your blessed grace and give glory to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Look, I would never preach from this text unless we were working through Isaiah. I promise you, this is not the place I would go to and say, all right, today, I think we've got a good word from the Lord here. You, it's one of the advantages of preaching through a book of the Bible. You're forced to deal with it. This <coughs> passage was most likely written during the time of Uzziah's reign. U Uzziah was a relatively godly king who reigned for a remarkable 52 years. Think about that. Even though Uzziah and his son Jotham were good kings, they were good kings who worshipped the Lord. Nonetheless, the people, God's covenant people, were prone to live as the nations around them lived. And rather than displaying the glory of God as they were designed to do, they, they looked very much like the nations around them. God's saying, we got a problem here. You're supposed to point to me and magnify my glory. Now, look, if, if, if God's glory 
is a problem for you. And I think most of us, we talked about this at home group last week. I think most of us at some point think, how is it that God wants all this glory to go to him? Is that not egotistical? Well, that question will be answered through time in Isaiah. But just know this. Anything that, that we do to cause God to be glorified and magnified is good for us in many, many ways. And God is saying, you have, you have traded my glory for the work of idols. Your pride, your, your, your hearts that just seek to be accepted by mankind around you has made you worthless. If you're not different, of what value are you? But when we glorify God, then oh my goodness, maybe people are not going to like it, but our relationship with God trumps it in so many ways, and we'll talk about that as we go. So God was not pleased with their desire to, to, to be and look just like the world. Nonetheless, God extended grace to his people, even as he rebuked them for their sin. There are several specific allegations that the Lord raised against his people, with pride being the central focus of the, of the rebuke, and we'll come back to that at the end. It, and even though none of these sins in Isaiah 2 and 3 plague the church today, we, we don't struggle with that, none of these here, I don't, with any of these here. Uh, and even that's the case, let's still, we need to review them just to make sure we stay away from them, okay? So the first sin mentioned in Isaiah 2, 6 is this, superstition. God's covenant people who were privileged to find guidance at the Lord's house were visiting fortune tellers and participating in, an, in, in other occult practices of the day. Now, I don't suppose there's anyone here who reads a horoscope in the morning to just sort of plan your movements for the day. I wouldn't think that that would be the case. There's no one here that would not walk under a ladder because it's bad luck, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't carry a special charm in your pocket and just sort of hold on to it at, at certain moments when you feel like you need some good luck. You, you wouldn't be guilty of any of that stuff, would you? Surely not. Routine is one thing. Superstition, another. Now, look. If I were going to be superstitious, it would be that every time I cut the game on, my team, which was ahead, begins to lose. You know, so I'm just better off. Cut. Routine is one thing, messing around. But superstition, where you're really afraid of stuff. And we have our Christian ways of superstition. I'm not going there. It's already going to be half the size of the crowd next Sunday. And I know after this sermon, but no need to make it any worse. But we have our own Christian superstitions and God says have none of it look when you start playing though when you start messing with Ouija boards and, and tarot cards and, 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 and seances you are moving from the light of the Lord as, as God Isaiah called God's people to live walk in the light of the Lord in verse 5 you're moving to the dark domain of Satan and you have no idea what you're messing do not play around with the occult or anything anywhere closely associated with it. The second cheery thing that we need to be aware of 
is unholy alliances. This one is tricky, no doubt. And I'm sure we're going to be dealing with this all the way through Isaiah. God's people who lived in Judah often made alliances with other nations, political alliances, so that for trade, yes, but also especially to be protected against other nations. In reading through Kings and Chronicles this year, I've been struck with the fact that every single king, all of them, all the way back to David, uh, made alliances. My goodness, if there's only, the only one I can think of that I, I can't think of an alliance right off the top of my head was Saul, and he had other problems, you know. But, but David, Solomon, look, the king of Tyre was very closely associated with David and Solomon both and, and provided materials for the, the, the temple that David planned and, and Solomon uh, built. And yet, and so God seemed to be okay with some of these alliances, but most of them he was very much against. In fact, when you think of Solomon and his 700 wives, 700 wives, think about that. Wow. <laughs> Look, I know I've told this story. I tell it every time I come to Solomon. I know it. I can't help it. Linda, my, my first wife, was teaching Sunday school in the mountains. And she was teaching about Solomon to preschoolers, and she talked about his 700 wives, and one of the kids said, wow, he must have had a big bed. <laughs> exactly. You know I mean? You got problems when you got 700 wives. Not even thinking about 700 mothers-in-law, but at least they, 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 lived in other, they lived in other countries, you know. But... But Solomon has all of these wives, and you know why he had them, right? Political alliances. It kept countries together, and it, it kept the peace, and all of that. So, <clears throat> which is the one you think about? Well, possibly the only one mentioned. I'm not 100% sure. But the wife, the daughter of the king of Egypt. And what does scripture say that she, along with all those other wives, did? They led his heart away. The wisest man who ever lived began because of his good intentions of, of keeping the peace all around him. Married these women who's, who led him to worship their gods. How do we apply this today? I, I'm not entirely certain. Because remember, we're talking to the church. It comes up over and over, not, not the nation. We're talking to the church. Should we never give to the Red Cross? That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not the point at all. Should we never attend a political rally? That's not the point. The point is that we should never seek salvation in any person, entity, organization other than Jesus Christ. Do not find your meaning, do not find your purpose for life in anything outside of Jesus. How then, as Francis Schaeffer would ask, should we then, how should we then live? When, as God's people, we are to be in the world but not of the world. Used to, you could just say, uh, God says we're to be in the world not of the world, Amen. And that's all you had to say. But look, if you're going to deal with that, what does that mean? What does it look like? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have a good answer for such a complex 
expectation. But what I do know is this. The, the, the early church made a profound impact on the world. And God used the early church to turn the world upside down. And it was not because they linked armed, arms with unbelievers to participate in really good activities. In fact, they lived counterculturally. They lived apart from the world. Not that they didn't interact with people, but Jesus was the supreme commitment for all of them. Look, we, yesterday was the 10th anniversary of Lynn, uh, Allison's father's passing. And her dad died two weeks after Linda, my first wife, died. And so this time of year, you know, we're thinking about both of them. And Allison's dad's favorite movie, and probably my favorite movie, is Chariots of Fire. My, my dad's favorite movie, I mean, was Chariots of Fire. My favorite movie is What About Bob? But that's another perfect <laughs> Kidding, kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, Eric Little had so many beautiful things to say that speak to us. God made me to serve him and to glorify him, but he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whatever God has called you to do, I am so glad you're doing it. I am so glad you're glorifying God in whatever place he has put you. Praise the Lord. Do not, this is not everybody get, go into ministry. Uh, this is just be a minister wherever you are. But never lose sight of the fact that your life is in God. And it's in community that the Lord has brought us into. Christianity spread throughout the ancient world. Because these men and women and boys and girls who knew Jesus lived counterculturally. Their love for one another and for the disenfranchised was attractive to a world that just went on the same way it had always gone with power grabs and abusing the powerless and greed and sexual immorality and political alliances that always carried a cost. It's not that believers <clears throat> in these first three centuries completely isolated themselves from the world. But again, their commitment to Jesus and his church superseded all other interests. Wonder, do you think our in attendance would increase or decrease if instead of coming here on Sunday morning, we met at about 20 different locations. And we had to be very discreet how we met because the authorities were watching. I mean, you had to leave your phone at home and everything. You just had to walk to meet with other people. Do you think we would increase or decrease in our numbers? When we are committed at that level to the Lord, people take notice. We could spend a long time here, uh, but there are more sins. I, I mean, there are more dangers to which we need uh, to focus our attention and be aware. The next being the false security of wealth and power. So let's deal with this right now. Is there anything wrong with being rich? If there is, we're all in trouble. Every one of us in this room is in trouble. There is not anything wrong with being rich. Is there anything wrong with seeking to provide for yourself and your family in retirement and even after your death? Absolutely no. no. 
If you want to go down the path to say that money is the root of all evil instead of the biblical truth, that it is the root of money, I mean the love of money, that is a root of all kinds of evil, then why are you buy, buying insurance for anything? Some you have to buy, but others you, you buy, you add little waivers on your home insurance to protect some of this stuff. It's not that money is the root, the love of money, and it happens everywhere against, across all socioeconomic groups. It's not the accumulation of wealth itself was the great sin of Isaiah's day and not the great sin of our day. The great sin is the tendency to look to one's security, find one's security in wealth, and ultimately also the tendency to look down and oppress those who are poor. Let's read Isaiah 2, 6, and 7 again, and, and we, then... We will read from Isaiah 3 where the warning against arrogance is associated, that's associated with wealth is addressed. Verse 6, for you, Yahweh, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and the fortune tellers, like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with tanks and planes and all kinds of technologically driven military. And there is no end to their chariots. Can we defeat anybody in the world? We think so. Probably so right now. It could all end overnight. You know, it's just... It's, Everything, all of life is a house of cards. We can talk about that for a long time later, not this morning. But, but 8 billion people on the planet, we, it's, it's a house of cards. Some of you know how much closer we are than others to, to, to this security being taken away. And you may think, wow, this is like America. But remember, he's not talking about America. He's not talking about, he's talking to the church, when we read Isaiah, we have to read this as him talking to the church. Because we are God's covenant people. So, <clears throat> I, I have to remind you that all nations, all individuals benefit when they live according to biblical principles. But the main application is the people of God. And we are warned about the temptation for our security to be in money and in our power, which comes from political alliances. Again, not the nation's power, but our power as individuals. Would you just love it when something happens, you can pick up the phone and call somebody because you got connections. Don't you love putting other people together? I can take care of that problem for you. Just remember who, who's buttering your bread now, okay? Remember that, because I'm going to call in a fake. I'm going to call in a favor one day. <laughs> Look, I got to do it on this text. It's really, this is a hard text. It is about to get a lot deeper in here, I can tell you that. It's a great burden to be wealthy if you're a child of God. It's a great burden. Why? Because it's not only a temptation... Uh, that you will find your security in riches, but it is very tempting for us when we have riches to 
develop an arrogance and contempt for those who are beneath us. Now, the more wealth we have, the more we learn how to mask that. We don't just show it. But we tend to think of others as beneath us. The ultimate sin with wealth is to oppress the poor, becoming rich at their expense. When your wealth is built unfairly on the backs of poor, you've got to answer to God for that. Let's look at Isaiah 3, beginning with verse 14. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people by grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. Notice that special judgment is exacted against godless leaders. The same principle applies in the New Testament for the leaders of God's people. Elders are called to shepherd and care for God's people in the same ways that they would care for their families. Look, how many wealthy businessmen, believers or not, say, I'm just taking care of my family. I'm sorry if it hurts you, but look, i got to take care of my family. i got to take care of my own. We're all family as believers. Getting rich by taking advantage of those under them is a great sin for leaders. It's one of the great benefits also of taking advantage in any way. It's one of the great benefits of of being an elder rule church. There is a measure of accountability that could never be there. If I or anyone else got up here on Sunday morning and I'm the man and I'm going to tell us how it's going to be and everybody says, okay, well, let's either do it or don't, but let's, let's get behind this guy. It's a group of people, it's a group of men, and we hold each other accountable because we're human just like anybody else. And we, one of us might get mad, and the others say, Well, you know, God is gracious, God's forgiving, and it just brings the temperature or, of the room right down. So, following the warning to leaders, Yahweh had a word to say to the wealthy and arrogant women of Judah. This is what one would call a politically incorrect passage to bring up on a Sunday morning. But it's God's word for his people. I'm not picking a text to make a point, but rather God is making a point to his people. Verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched eyes, glancing wantonly with their eyes, Or outstretched necks, that would be outstretched (laughs) eyes would be a real trick. Uh, (laughs) Outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Awkward, Uh, (laughs) awkward, but truth. Have women been oppressed by men over the years? Absolutely. And it is a very good thing that the godless abuses of men have come to light, of some men have come to light. It would be a mistake for us as a society and as a church 
to fail to acknowledge our collective sins where men have been free to abuse women and then fail to make advances in treating all people with dignity and gospel truth and the love of Christ, who, by the way, significantly elevated the status and treatment and care of women. It would be equally unwise to accept a narrative that says that all issues between men and women are entirely men's fault. And if women want to dress or act in sexually provocative ways, then just deal with it. No, instead, we must deal with the text, or better, let this text deal with us. Do not buy what the culture is selling until you have determined that it is not unbiblical. That's a triple negative. Three negatives, but it's the best way to say it. There are a lot of things that are extra biblical that are not unbiblical. But some things that are said are unbiblical and move us away from truth. And the church today, just like the, the covenant people of God in Isaiah's day, are particularly prone to taking cues from the culture. Make sure the culture is not telling you something unbiblical before you accept it. Two sins of which the wealthy women of Judah were guilty. Arrogance and flirtation. Look, we're going to go just a minute or two long, but I think you'll be okay because this is one of the, what's they going to say now? They were walking with outstretched necks. In other words, their noses were in the air, looking down on those who considered, they considered less than their equals. Look, this is just a sin of men and women alike. We all tend to, whenever we accumulate anything, wealth, um, position, status, knowledge, we, we tend to look down on others. I mean, you find out about the benefits of eating healthy, even though the great majority of your life has consisted of a less than exemplary dietary practice, but all of a sudden, you're an expert on grain-fed beefs, I mean, grass-fed beef and, and, and essential oils. Look, I'm not opposed to it. We bought a Himalayan pink salt lamp, for goodness sake. This week. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that, that this stuff is wrong. I like to think about it. I don't like to practice it. But let us not forget Paul's instructions to Timothy, which acknowledged the benefit of bodily exercise, but reminded him that spiritual discipline to increase godliness was far more important. When we are in the word, we are far more likely to be humble and avoid these sins to which uh, Isaiah is pointing. Uh, the other Sin that Isaiah condemned among the women of Judah was their flirtatious, flirtatious ways. It was their right, after all, they were modern, wealthy women. They glanced wantonly or seductively with their eyes, and they practically pranced as they walked, which apparently was a thing in the day. I'm not exactly sure, but there was something going on. Is it possible in our day to say that Christian women need to be aware of the sinful tendencies of arrogance and of immoral flirtation? 
Because some men have been exposed for the cads, the godless cads that they are. Does that mean all morality between men and women is the fault of men? <laughs> Does scripture have anything relevant to say about dress and flirtatious actions of women as well as men? Who, those who, who bear the name of Christ. Yes, it does. In both the Old and New Testaments, men and women are all commanded not to promise more than we can righteously deliver. In other words, Sports Illustrated, swimsuit issue, naked women hidden just in the right way saying, me too, as Christians, that is ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous. That's the world, but that's not who we are. And quit defending it if it's ungodly and unbiblical. We live, we're held to a different standard. We, to defraud someone, is to promise something that you cannot righteously deliver. So whether it's the way you dress in public, it's your Facebook profile, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever. Even if Snapchat lets it go, God knows it. Be careful. Which was, this was all a focal part of Isaiah's rebuke. Do not read more into my comments than I mean to say. There has been both historically and in our day a great deal of reprehensible male behavior in society and in the church. But we are all sinners and we, we must give attention to this. And I'm so glad to be saying this in the winter rather than the summer. The Lord has his ways of reminding us all of his expectations for godly behavior. And both the men and women of Judah were in for a rude awakening. Look at verse 24 and 26. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of a of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. Direct and difficult words written to God's people before Christ that have much to say to us in our day. The last two sins that we will consider briefly from the text are idolatry and pride. Can you imagine... Can you imagine bowing your head to a false god, one that you made? Can you imagine how just disgusting that is? No, I can't either imagine bowing my head to a god who pretty much controls my life. The New Testament identifies our many idols that stand between us and our Lord, and obstruct our vision of the cross. If we have any hope of living this life well, we need a vision of the cross to remind us that we are his people and we do not belong to the world. 
and to remind us of what price was paid for our redemption and to not treat it casually or cavalierly. In the end, it all comes down to pride. By the way, before I jump into this, let me just say, men have lots of problems, and believe me, the text will get to all of that, and we'll deal with that as we go. So don't think I'm picking on any gender today, but it, it comes around to, to hit us all. Maybe the great sin in the church today is that we think we know how to run our lives better than God knows. You know what's even sadder than that? That we think that the culture knows better how we should run our lives than God knows. But he is our creator and redeemer. When we are proud, we put ourselves in the position of God choosing <clears throat> to humble us or in the place of God choosing to humble us, just as he promised to humble and even humiliate the men and women of Jerusalem. Far better that we humble ourselves than have God humble us. James 4, 6, citing Proverbs 3, 34, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the ways that we stay humble before the Lord is to have more regard for him than those whose judgment we fear. Interesting, isn't it? With so many rebukes that Isaiah delivered, he pointed to the fear of God above the fear of man as a remedy for sin. Isaiah 2.22 Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? This begs the question, do you care more about what God thinks of you or what others think of you? Here's another way to ask that question. Do you care more about what God or uh, about um, what people think about God when they look at your life or you care more about what they think about you? Because the only way they're really going to look at us and see God is if we are living for his, as, as his children. And oftentimes, that means we are living counterculturally. Not arrogantly. Stop it. Would you please stop it, all of you? including me. Stop whining on Facebook. Stop, stop being so angry on Facebook that this is not presenting the Lord. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath that can be taken away at any moment. For what of, of what account is he? Care deeply about God, what he says, what he thinks, and what he expects. Have you sinned? Have you blown it? Oh, mercy. Not as much as I've sinned and blown it. Thank God for his forgiveness. But we are not going to live close to him without the humility of being able to say, God, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Where is the hope in this passage? Look. Hope is all the way through Isaiah, but it's not always exactly right where we want it to be. When we come to next week, we're, we're going to see that God, through judgment, 
cleansed and, and purified a people for himself. And as we rejoice heading into Holy Week, on that Palm Sunday, realizing that it is because of Christ's sacrifice that we have left, that we have life, we can rejoice together in the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can live in such a way that the world takes notice and they say, I want some of that. Look, there are some of you going through stuff that is so difficult and I'm not, I'm not, when I say that about quit whining, you know what I'm talking about. Look, we all, it's just the way it is this day. Well, life is so hard for me. I had somebody cut me off in traffic and I just don't like the way people do and they, Save your whining for the really hard stuff, right? And pray for one another. Care deeply for one another and extend the love of Christ. And when somebody does you wrong, forgive them. You probably won't have a chance to practice that for the next maybe 30 minutes or so. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody's going to do you wrong soon. Love them. Live as God's people are called to live. Let's pray. Well, the worship team practices and they're coming up, but just hold your position, guys. We don't have time to sing that last song. I'm sorry for that. Lord, we are grateful for all that you have done for us. We're grateful, Jesus, that you went to the cross. And even though we have to say guilty, 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 we can also say no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we're grateful. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would change us into the people you want us to be. Because we're called by your name, and the power of Christ lives in us. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and just sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.